Welcome to Law in the Bush, a regional, rural, remote podcast by the University of New England's Law School. Don't forget to enter our competition to win a prize. Tell us your favourite episode and why, or just email us or see the episode description for more details. Today we're speaking to Troy Anderson from the Public Defenders Chambers, and he's also teaching at UNE. We're so lucky to have him. Welcome, Troy. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much. You're a lawyer, a barrister, a law academic, and senior counsel. Could you tell our listeners about the Public Defenders Chambers, which is where you're working out of, and about what a senior counsel is. No problem. The public defenders chambers are a fairly unique group in Australia. Everyone knows what a Crown prosecutor is. In New South Wales, the public defenders chambers are set up really as the opposite number to the Crown prosecutors. So there's about 100 Crown prosecutors in New South Wales, and there's about 25 public defenders. And we tend to do the most serious crime in New South Wales. So we're all barristers. Serious crime. Wow. Yeah. So we do most of the murders that you see reported on television. We do a lot of the terrorism cases, big fraud, big drugs. It's not everything that we do. We do a lot of work in the district court as well. On average, there's about 50 murders committed in New South Wales each year. Public defenders would appear in probably 35 to 40 of those cases. So that's kind of our main area of work. And would you be appearing for the government or for the person who's committed the crime? So we always appear for the accused. Our clients are either people who are entitled to the grant of legal aid or they're Aboriginal and they're entitled to services of the Aboriginal legal service. So if you fall into one of those two camps, you might be able to get a public defender. In terms of the second part of the question being senior counsel, it just means that I'm more senior than some of my colleagues, so I probably get more complex work, do more appellate work, and get to wear fancier robes. <laughs> and you're quite young to be a senior counsel, aren't you? Look, I'm 50, so I'm probably about average, maybe a little bit earlier than some others. And Troy, can you share with our listeners any well-known cases that you've worked on? People like a little uh, bit of gory detail, I think. Look, I suppose some of the most interesting cases I've worked on have been the terrorism cases. One of those involves the shooting of a man at Parramatta, the accountant by the name of Curtis Cheng, and I acted for one of the men that was charged with committee and active terrorism that was involved in that case. That was very interesting. Another one involved another guy charged with terrorism, which was a young man who had some very serious mental health issues who was following... Islamic State on the internet became quite radicalised and one morning decided that a good thing to do would be to try and stab and kill one of his neighbours. And that was a very interesting case because it brought together three areas of my work. It brought together my Commonwealth criminal law experience, which is quite a niche area. That's what all terrorism is prosecuted by the Commonwealth. It also brought together just general sort of standard criminal practice and procedure, but also a lot to do with mental health issues. And that trial really didn't turn on whether this young man committed the offence. Everyone knew that he stabbed this bloke. The question was, well, when he did it, did he do it knowing what he was doing? So we were running a defence of not guilty by reason of mental illness. Ultimately, that failed. But the most interesting part of the case 
was the psychiatric evidence that we led and that the Crown led and that the jury had to consider. So that was probably the most interesting case. That was a few years ago now that that would have been in the press. But a lot of our cases are in the newspaper, even if only fleetingly. You know, so-and-so is in trial and they've been convicted of this. It is interesting work because yeah. it does have that public notoriety and often you have your friends saying to you, oh, were you in that case? Tell us a bit more about it. <laughs> often you can't say too much beyond what's in the press. What's it like dealing with a criminal, having a criminal, a gangster or a terrorist as a client? You'd be surprised, but they're just like anyone else. Often, particularly the serious charges of murder, it might be just a one-off brain snap. These people are in situations where they've just done something extraordinarily stupid for a very brief moment in their life, and they get convicted of murder, but they're not necessarily bad people, if that makes sense. A lot of people that have very serious mental health issues or drug issues, and their life is quite difficult. They find themselves in situations where rather than thinking something through the way someone else might, their immediate reaction is to overreact. And that can lead to some fairly serious consequences. So look, a lot of the people that I deal with, if you sat down with them and had dinner, you wouldn't necessarily think that there was anything strange about them or anything like that. It's often just there is a moment of stupidity in their life, which has led them to be prosecuted for something very serious. And in your experience, are there differences between rural and urban criminals and rural and urban crime? Look, I asked one of my colleagues about this the other day. The public defenders, we've got probably 10 people who are based in rural and regional New South Wales. And I raised with him, you wish he was still in Sydney. Is the crime different where he is? He's in Dubbo. And he said, look, the crime is the same, but there's often more petty crime that gets prosecuted because there's a lot more sort of over-policing. There's a lot more of an emphasis by the police to pull up people who might be driving unregistered in their motor vehicle, who may be selling drugs, who may be involved in some crime that we would consider in the city still important to prosecute, but might not get prosecuted because there's just not the same level of policing in Sydney that there might be in a Ah, rural town. That goes to, I guess, justice, a fairness too. It's an interesting question because justice is not something we ever get taught or try and practice. That's not really what the job is about. You hope everything is just, but from our point of view, and I think probably from the Crown's point of view, everything turns on what the evidence is. I think one of the things that my colleagues who work in regional and rural New South Wales often comment on is that there is a lot more policing of Indigenous people in rural areas. There's a lot more focus on trying to crack down on crime and there's just a lot more of a police presence in some towns than there would necessarily be in Sydney or in the eastern suburbs or the north shore of Sydney, where there's probably just as much crime often going on, but there's not the same police presence. Is that justice? I don't know. That's a good philosophical question. There are units that students can study here about crime and sentencing to Review that sort of thing because it is a little bit harsher in rural areas because even the same sentence has a harsher effect. So I spoke to someone recently, you know, if you lose your licence in Sydney compared to Armidale, the outcome is much harsher in Armidale because we have a bus once a day and a, a train once a day and to go north of Armidale is quite difficult. So people would try and use their car and then get into strife again once they lost their licence. Now, you teach a unit 
called Commonwealth Criminal Law, which I think sounds so exciting. What's it about? <laughs> well, it is. It's interesting crime because it's not your classic crime. It's not rape, stabbing and sexual assaults or anything like that. It tends to be what we would call generically white collar crime. So a lot of fraud, tax evasion, terrorism is part of that. Drug importation is part of that. So the difference between state crime and Commonwealth crime is pretty simple. The state makes laws about whatever it wants. The Commonwealth can only make laws about whatever is in the Commonwealth Constitution, so the precise heads of power. The Commonwealth essentially looks after prosecuting any offence that involves international boundaries, so hence picking up drug offences. It prosecutes people that are running away with its money, hence fraud is a big aspect of it, people that are getting paid Centrelink, for example, or ripping off Medicare. But terrorism is also part of it, not because that's something that's picked up in the Constitution, but by agreement with all of the other states and territories. They've all handed over to the Commonwealth their power to prosecute that kind of offence. It's corporations law as well, child exploitation, which involves often offences that are occurring overseas, but they get prosecuted here, and sex trafficking work. But also an increasing area of interest is people who get prosecuted for doing inappropriate things over the internet because the Commonwealth controls telecommunications networks. Oh, that's Sorry, a little bit salacious. I'm not going to go into depth with that, <laughs> what people are doing on the internet that they're being prosecuted for. And I also wondered about spying and treason and treachery and that sort of thing. All of that, yes, absolutely. All of that is within the Commonwealth sphere of protecting the Commonwealth. So everyone might have heard of the case recently of a man being prosecuted down in the ACT called Witness K, who was alleged to have divulged government secrets improperly, and he's being prosecuted. That's a Commonwealth offence. Of course, I can't talk to you about it because none of us know anything about it. It's all in camera that it's being held. But that is definitely a Commonwealth offence. It's a really interesting area of law, partly because not a lot of people study it, but it does exist out in the real world when you come to practice. And people are confronted by something which is very unusual. You've got a very detailed criminal code, very different from the State Crimes Act, different terminology, obviously different offences. And it's quite a different approach to crime. A lot of it's similar. But different terminology can be quite confusing to people. And it's an interesting area. And if you want to practice in crime, but not get involved in people getting stabbed and uh, sexually assaulted, it's the way to go. <laughs> and is this a statute one that we inherited from England or is it one we've inherited and then rejigged to make it our own? It's really unusual, actually. It's called a code because it's meant to be absolutely everything you need to understand crime in the Commonwealth sphere. So it's different from a normal act of parliament. The one-stop shop. So no common law principles necessary in theory to understand how the code works. But the code was created in 1995 and it basically does use common law concepts. It's something that's unique really to the Commonwealth. I think there might be a code as well in Queensland and WA, but most of the crimes acts around Australia involve a lot of common law concepts. Commonwealth criminal code doesn't. It's meant to be like, as I say, the one-stop shop. If it's not in the code, it doesn't exist as a crime. Well, I guess that makes it a little bit more clear cut. You're listening to Law in the Bush, a law research series about regional rural remote law by the University of New England. 
you like about being a barrister and public defender? I became a barrister basically because I got sick of being a solicitor. I was a solicitor for nine years at a very big commercial law firm in Sydney. And I like the idea of advocacy. I like the idea of being on my feet and arguing things and cross-examination. And that wasn't really what I was doing as a solicitor. So I went to the bar as a bit of a gamble and it worked. I enjoyed it. And then after doing crime and other bits and pieces for almost 10 years, I became a public defender. So you've got to apply for that job and you know you may or may not get it. So I applied got the job and the best thing about being a public defender is that you're working with people that just do crime and just do serious crime so you're working with I think you know the best criminal barristers in New South Wales certainly from the defense point of view so you're working with the best you're doing the best cases as well the high profile ones the ones that are tending to be run in the supreme court and the district court so you've got the best judges and you have the best opponents as well because they are also doing the very serious matters. So it's like playing test cricket, I guess. If you want to be doing the best work with the best people, being a public defender is where it's at. So I love it. Sounds amazing. I have got one question that you'll be able to answer for our listeners. Why is it that with it being Commonwealth law that it's not prosecuted in the High Court? Because I think our listeners don't understand the court system. The way it works is quite interesting. The Commonwealth doesn't have its own court. The High Court only deals with maybe 50 cases a year, the very serious appellate one. There is the federal court, but that's not really geared up to deal with crime. So even though the Commonwealth has this special parallel criminal justice system with the Commonwealth Crimes Act and the Commonwealth Criminal Code, it's allowed to use state and territory courts so if you are prosecuted, for example, for a Commonwealth offence in New South Wales, chances are it'll be prosecuted in the New South Wales local court or in the district court. And it's simply because there is no federal court that's designed to really deal with crime. Theoretically, the federal court could do it, but it just doesn't. Now, what sparked your interest in teaching law at UNE? That's University of New England. Well, it was a long time ago. I think I saw an ad on the bar newsletter that the UNE needed teachers for just normal criminal law. I think it was Law 161. So for about five years, I taught that. And I liked the idea of teaching because it did two things. Firstly, it got me some extra money when I was at the private bar. That was a good thing. But secondly, it helped me go back to first principles in terms of well, why do these things work the way I'm used to working with them in court? What's the basis of all this law that I'm using? So it was a bit of a refresher course for me. And then I wrote a book on Commonwealth criminal law. And then I was invited by Michelle Edgeley, who's one of the lecturers in law, to think about doing a topic on that because no one else teaches that around Australia. And I did that. It was very successful. We had a lot of students. They all seem to be very happy with it. So I'm doing it again, but I've now stopped doing the, the Law 161 program and I just do the Commonwealth Criminal Law. And I love it. Like I love the teaching. I love dealing with the students. In fact, it causes me to think about my job differently because of the questions that people ask. It certainly reminds me of a lot of the law that I've forgotten, but I think it also helps me because I've got to try and think to myself, well, how do I explain this to the students? And that's a useful skill because I've often got to explain things to a jury. So, I mean, I get quite a lot out of it. That's great. Now, when is that being offered again? 
that pause on Commonwealth criminal law starts in the third semester, so I think that's October 2022. Excellent. Because you practiced as a barrister, now, so you've done that and you work in academia, what would you advise students to do when they finish their law degree if they want to work in law? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, I think it's very hard to get a job. It was hard to get a job when I got admitted as a solicitor in 1998. I think what you've got to do is firstly get a job, work out if it's the area that you want to practice in. And if it's not the area you want to practice in, don't leave it too long to change to go to the area that you do want to practice in. I started off doing commercial work. I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to do crime. But you get your first job, you start getting paid, you're moving up the food chain in the office. It becomes very difficult to then move to do something else. So look, I think my advice would be think about the areas you want to work in, try and work in those straight off the bat. If you don't have a preference you know, and you're happy to work anywhere, that's fantastic. But if you aren't happy in the area that you're practicing in, move sooner rather than later. Because if you're stuck doing conveyancing for 50 years and you didn't ever want to do the sale and purchase of a house, that would be very miserable. (laughs) It would. So I guess you would encourage students to head towards crime. (laughs) Look, not even that. Not even that. I mean, I think the best lawyers in crime anyway are the ones that have done both prosecution and defence work because you get to see the other side. That makes you much more pragmatic as an advocate. 90% of prosecutions resolve in a guilty plea or a person being found guilty after trial. So I think it's good for an advocate, no matter what side you're on, to be able to see the other side's perspective. It helps you negotiate things. But no matter what area it is, whether it is convincing or crime or corporations law, you've got to work in an area that you're interested in. There's no good coming to work every day, being miserable. So get that first job, work in it as hard as you can. If it's not the area you want to work in, move somewhere else. Getting that first job is the hardest thing, I think. Thank you so much, Troy, for being with us today. No problem at all, Lisa. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Please fill out our survey in the link below.